Hey, good morning. Um, we particularly need the Lord's help this morning. One, this is an, an incredible psalm. We're thinking about difficult things. But two, um, I spent much of the last week in bed, so I'm going to um, pray for myself and my voice that I'll keep going um, and pray for you and for all of us that we would take God's word to heart and that we would understand what he's saying and think together a little bit about what it means as we think about the importance of how we treat other people. Let me pray for us as we begin. Well, we thank you for that extraordinary psalm that shows something of your intimate care and knowledge of us. We, we pray that you would be at work among us this morning. We pray that you would speak to each of us. Um, Father, pray for myself. Pray for, for, for weak speakers and voices that you would help us to keep going. And that your word would be proclaimed for your glory. Amen. A few, um, a few weeks ago, I let you in on a little secret um, about our family's love for a particular character, um, Punchinello. That was then um, picked up by Bex, who did a kid's slot, and we were thinking about, do you remember Grey Dots and Golden Stars and how we value each other or where value and worth comes from? Um, just to keep it sufficiently highbrow this morning, um, I thought I'd let you in on, on, on another um, family favourite for us in the Steele household. It's this one. Horton, here's a who. Thank you. There we go. There's a few cheers. Um, why is it a favourite for... I'd want to say the kids, but really it's for me. Why is it a favourite for me? Well, Doctor's use is, is often more than a bit subversive and likes to teach things through slightly weird kind of children's verse and slightly weird drawings. There's a... It appeals to my rebellious streak, but, but Horton in particular, I think, is important. It's slightly unusual. It's a film now, so some of you may have seen the film, didn't realize it was a book first, but it's about an elephant with huge ears. There he is. And he believes that he can hear tiny people alive on a dust speck on a flower, and he wants to protect these people. And trouble is no one else believes him. Nobody else can hear them. So they all think he's crazy, and the mob forms, and they want to get rid of him and his ideas about this dust speck and these people living on this dust speck. And yet right through the book, there is this refrain. A person's a person, no matter how small. That is what you hear coming again and again from Horton's lips. If an elephant has lips, I'm not sure. But a person's a person, no matter how small. Now, even my, my brother got me a T-shirt at Christmas. There we are. <laughs> So I have my Horton Here's a Who t-shirt on for you this morning. Try not to be distracted. I'm going to do myself up. <laughs> Maybe unsurprisingly, the, the pro-life movement has, has latched onto this little phrase. They see it as an allegory for the rights of the unborn. But interestingly, it, it seems to, if you look back at it and you look at some of the history, it seems to not be why the now deceased Dr. Zeus wrote it. In fact, his family have actually threatened to sue American pro-lifers who have used it for their cause. Rather, it seems to be that he was writing about the, the rights and the values of the Japanese after World War II. He even dedicates the book to a Japanese professor named um, Mitsugi Nakamura. It's not a book making comments about when life starts. It's a book making comments about the value of the individual. And the central concern of doctor's use expressed through Horton is, is that everybody has dignity. Even those for whom America were at war with. However small and, and marginalized people are, 
Dr. Zeus wants us to understand that people are valuable. And as it happens in the book, if you know it, then the whole of the race, the little the who's in Whoville, are saved by the smallest of them all, little Jojo, who shouts out at the end, and suddenly their voice is heard and they can hear. But I think that person, I think that, that phrase, a person's a person, no matter how small, is a, is a great concept to, to summarize something of what we've been seeing in this topical series these last few weeks. Doctor's use won't have meant it like this, but we have seen that an individual's dignity and worth fundamentally comes from being made in God's image. It's not because of an inherent usefulness or because they are especially valuable or skilled or good at something. Personhood is not something you earn, we have said. It's because whether they acknowledge it or not, people are made in God's image. And so however small they are, however unimportant seemingly, they have value and worth. And we said, historically, this inherent value and this worth for the individual has underpinned much of our Western society for the good. We've said we're still somewhat seemingly living in a legacy of the past. We enjoy healthcare and schools and a society based on this idea that people are valuable as individuals. And I wanted in passing where the new atheism states polemically that, that religion poisons everything and is evil and must be done away with. Maybe we need to open their eyes a bit to the importance of the past, to the reality of history. We do away with God at our peril. The, the West increasing, we've said, is becoming a, a cut flower in a vase culture. It's still beautiful. It's still flourishing in a sense, but, but we've been snipped off from God. And it's wilting. And what we've traced week by week as we've been thinking about this topic is, is essentially Genesis 3 being worked out again and again. As God's been done away with, instead of a, a dignity, an inherent dignity that comes from being made in God's image, under him, ruling, submitting and subduing the earth, as he's, as he's told us to, there's, there's rather a new dignity being grasped for, that wants to be like him that comes from doing God-type things, doing away with him but taking on his role and so making the call on, on matters of life and death or making the call on matters of gender or marriage even. We, we want to be the captain of our own ship. We want to decide. We want to know good and evil for ourselves to define it. And so today, and we've obviously done this already in the series, we're going to be um, thinking a little bit about how being made in God's image affects how we treat one another and how we treat other people, how we perceive people. We're going to be thinking about ethics. It's a bit of a silly thing because, there, of course, there are all kinds of different ethics that we can think about. One simple definition of ethics, just to help you get a, a slight framework for this morning, is moral principles that govern how we behave. It's as simple as that. And so what I want us to do is to spend some time in Psalm 139 to gather some principles and a framework to, to, to look at that psalm and think about how it shapes our view of others, how we should engage with others, and maybe even how that psalm might inform and, and engage our thinking about ethical and, and issues and dilemmas and the kind of stuff we read about in the papers and debate with friends. I'm going to have to be overly simplistic, and we have ethics professors among us, so I feel slightly ashamed, but I hope there'll be some, some useful thoughts and ideas, some things for us to reflect upon and chew upon and meditate upon. 
I'm going to read Psalm 139 again. I know we've just read it, but I'm keen that that really is what is soaking into us this morning. Psalm 139 is the word of God. My preach is just an attempt to help us understand it and apply it. It's a beautiful text. It's profoundly moving. It, it sits somewhere in the kind of hymn and thanksgiving and praise, but lament psalm. Let me read it again for us. For the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's an incredible psalm. I know it's a favorite to many, many people. But we're going to slice it into three broad themes Unashamedly, I'm using the three C's that the late pastor theologian John Stott used when looking at this psalm. We're going to look at the three C's of creation, of covenant, and of continuity. Firstly, creation. Have a look down and zoom in particularly on verse 13 to 16 with me initially. It's the language of, of creation. Does, does it even echo Genesis 1 in verse 15? My, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. David writes and he sees the womb as, as something dark and mysterious, a place, of, a place of creation, a place of forming. 
of building, even when perhaps the mother's not aware of the existence. God knew because God made, because he is the one who gives life. And he's never seen an ultrasound. It doesn't stop him from using the amazing figurative language to describe God's providential care at this this fragile state, this special time, as if the psalmist is like clay and the Lord is the potter forming his hand creating and guiding. Well, then he mixes metaphors, and it's as if the psalmist is a, is a tapestry, and the Lord is skillfully blending and weaving together the threads and the strands into a person. Verse 13, for, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's close and it's intimate. It's beautiful. And one of the right responses for us must be praise. Humble praise with the psalmist for the God who creates. Of course, biology is at work. David will have known that. And so do we, maybe more so with technological advancements. But this is the the divine artist creating a unique masterpiece in the shape of a person. We don't like to admit it, but there are still many questions that science will have. We don't know how it all works, but God does. He's the one who makes. But as we've said week on week, there is this natural bent within the human heart to get rid of God. And so that has all kinds of implications with how we read a psalm like this with the the switch that's happened, with the root belief in the autonomy of human beings. There's this huge confusion of what even it means to be a person now. You read it in the papers. (laughs) On the one hand, you can read amazing articles, as I read on Friday in The Guardian. Uh, Professor Nicolades from King's College Hospital London, maybe you read it, performing surgery on unborn children at 17 weeks in the womb. Extraordinary, saving lives. Then on the other hand, people not even sure what it means to be a person and when that starts, whether that's in the womb or even outside of the womb. Just as an example, the Australian philosopher currently at Princeton, Peter Singer, says personhood depends on, on what I can do, on the functioning of my cerebral cortex. So very crudely would say that because a fetus isn't self-aware or rational, then that they aren't persons, and so abortion is, is acceptable, he would say. In fact, I think he would say a similar thing about newborns, too, with that argument. It's this confusion as to what it makes to be a person. But in Christian thinking, our personhood rests not on what I do or on my functionality, but rather that God has called me into existence and that I'm made in his image. And when does that start? When does that begin? It's not explicit, but surely we would want to err on the side of caution as Christians, as early as it gets. Our dignity is intrinsic, however broken and unformed and fragile a tiny baby might be. Human beings don't need to earn the right to be treated as such. A person is a person, no matter how small. 
I think confusion on this, this idea of, of what makes a person has, has in part at least contributed to the, to the rate and the frequency of abortions around the world. I'm more than aware this might be a difficult topic for some. But it must be in part that, that we don't see people as people until they can show that they are able to live by themselves or, or fend for themselves or whatever it might be. We, we love the phrase, a potential human life, but as you read Psalm 139, surely it's a human life with potential. That's a big difference. And in a society that serves self, as we've seen week on week, where desires rule, where I want to be the captain of my own ship, where, where I want to be able to make the decisions about my life, thank you very much, then far too easily unplanned babies can be seen as inconveniences, especially perhaps in cultures where, where, where for, for workplace or business success, then staying on the career ladder as long as possible can be so vital and tempting for people. Again, there was a very good article recently shared um, on social media about somebody who was, who was pro-abortion, and then she, she changed her mind. I thought she was very insightful, what she said. Let me read you a little bit. She says that abortion indisputably ends a human life, but this loss is usually set against the woman's need to have an abortion in order to freely direct her own life. And she continues like this. It's a particular cruelty to present abortion as something women want, something they demand or find liberating, because nobody wants this. The procedure itself is painful, humiliating, expensive. No woman wants to go through it, but once it's available, it appears to be the logical, reasonable choice. She continues, no one wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion as an animal caught in a trap wants to gnaw off its own leg. The point is, we seem to have created a, a culture, a society where, where ha having a baby feels like someone feels trapped rather than it be a blessing and something very positive. When self is king, when desires rule the day, when we learn to justify our behavior, then things get very messy and very complicated. Psalm 139 says, says this. Listen to this from John Wyatt, who's a bioethicist, Christian. He says, foundationally and fundamentally, in Christian thought, the dignity of a human being resides not in what you can do, but in what you are by creation. Human beings don't need to earn the right to be treated as godlike beings. Our dignity is intrinsic in the way we've been made. That is, a person is a person, no matter how small, because we're made in the image of God. So firstly, creation, second covenant. Let me read from 1 to 5 again. Have a look down at Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. See, it's not just that God made the psalmist, that he created him. But no, he, he relates to his people too. He, he knows them. There's an incredible intimacy and a knowledge that is at the very heart of the psalm. It's, 
It's profoundly moving. It's amazing and it's terrifying. Our God knows you. He knows the real you. Not not the you that you seek to project. Not the you that you would like to be. Not even the, the you that perhaps you think you are. He actually knows you. He's familiar with all your ways. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and and he doesn't run a mile from us. Isn't that extraordinary? In fact, rather than running a mile, his presence is always with us. His knowledge seems to be both a a beautiful comfort and a scary challenge as well. His his presence is everywhere. He perceives all things, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Up in the heavens, you're there. Bed in the depths, you're there. On the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. It doesn't matter about altitude or, or time or distance whether it's the highest heavens or the deepest oceans or the depths of the earth, there is nowhere that the Lord is not. Think of Jonah. Think of Jonah, foolish Jonah. Either side of the sea, even in the pitch black, the Lord is there. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You know when you're awake in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, maybe feelings of being alone or terrified of what has been or what might be, he is with you in the darkness. Because God calls people into existence and into a relationship with him. He, he's not a far-off God, but a God who knows his people. And we're not going to spend long on this, but notice too, he even loves the unresponsive. He even knows the unresponsive. Even in the womb, even when the psalmist is unable to respond, even when it is completely one-sided, so God knew him and loved him. So God makes creation, God, God knows, covenant. And the final C, which may, may seem slightly strange from John Stott, is continuity. What does that mean? That is, that was me in there. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Did you see that The me of then and the me of now are profoundly linked together. As the psalmist thinks of his own personal history, it's the same person. He can can look back to verse 16 into the womb and, and only God sees this unformed body, his history in the womb. Then he can look to the present, so verse 2 to 3, for example. Or, Or even to the potential future, verse 9 to 10. But you see his point, it is all joined up. It's not as if there was a time when I became me. It's not as if 20 weeks, so that's when I became me. Or when I was born, that 
was when I became me, or when the placenta was cut, that was when I became me. Now, even in the womb, he says, it was me. The person that was in the womb is the person of the now. And it's a person with a purpose as well. Again, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And for some of us, that will raise all, th- all kinds of thorny theological conundrums about free will and God's sovereignty. And even if you don't quite get it, and there is a mystery to it, can I urge you to, to just note, to treasure, to have confidence that the Lord has a book for you, and in it are written your days. And so you can trust him. And I know that costs. I know that's hard for some people, but nothing takes him by surprise. Incredibly and somehow, he is working all things together for your good, that is to make you more like his son, the Lord Jesus. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's never blindsided. He's never surprised by what happens because he is... Sovereign. And so Psalm 139 says, he, he makes us, that is creation. He, he knows us, that is covenant. It is always us, that is continuity. And your, your mind is probably already spinning off to different applications and thoughts of how a psalm like this ought to shape how we treat people at different stages of life, different walks of life. We'll do some more work in home groups on that. But before we finish, I just want to say a couple of things. A couple of things that have struck me in my preparation for this and just to get us thinking and juices flowing as we discuss this as a church. Um, One is a word of caution. And secondly is drawing in some themes from previous weeks as well. So there's a word of caution and then themes from previous weeks. So the word of caution is this. That is the importance of words. And as I've prepared for this, and I've read various things, various difficult articles, difficult books, a thing that struck me is that the way that the meaning of words change over time. And so we need to work hard to think about these things, particularly if you're in a medical profession. Just as an example for you, there's the kind of thorny word euthanasia, which literally means a good death. Gentle, easy, peaceful end to life. I presume something we would all like. But we must be alert to the fact that words change their meanings over time. So euthanasia is not so much now just a good death, but rather a a deliberately bringing about a good death. Not so much dying well, but causing people to die. It's introducing death into a situation where, where it was not previously present. And you see, to allow to die and to cause to die are very different things. And so one of the things that really, really struck was the, the increased acceptance of things. Something that was once an exception at the boundary ends up becoming the norm. And there's a new exception and a new boundary. I don't think the slippery slope arguments are always that helpful, but, but it's something that's worth keeping an eye on. Let me just give you an example. (laughs) Um, 
We're people who like to push boundaries. That's what humanity is, in part. There's something good about that because we're developing and growing and evolving and, and, and changing things, but there's something dangerous about that too, particularly when God's not in the equation. So here's the example from the Second World War. American psychiatrist Leo Alexander wrote a paper entitled Medical Science Under Dictatorship. And what he's done, and it's, a, it's an interesting article, is, is trace the historical roots of the Nazi euthanasia movement. And he asked the question, how is it that respected doctors could have participated in such horrendous acts? What's happened to reach that point? And he concluded this. He said, it started with the acceptance by doctors of the idea basic in the euthanasia movement that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. Okay, that was the initial step. That was the, the trajectory. And this attitude in the beginning, he says, referred to the severely and chronically sick. But gradually, the sphere of those to be included was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and, and he goes on. I don't want to scaremonger, but, but as you track the prog progression, if, if that's the right word of these things, then, then often there's a trajectory that is set, and we simply head further and further along that line because, because self is king, and our desires rule, and God is not there anymore. We don't want him to be commenting on what we do. And we begin to justify our behavior. So the importance of words, words evolve and change, and we need to have eyes open to that. The second thing to say as we think about ethics, if you like, or how we treat others, is the importance of people. Maybe that's obvious. It's not always the case, but often when considering ethical dilemmas or that sort of stuff, or even just in how you treat people, we, because of the value of an individual... Because I am an individual and therefore I have value and worth, then, then often we can make decisions in isolation without including other people. We can lock the door and keep them out of our decisions. We, we can make the hard call in secret even. And yet there are at least, I think, two people, he says as an understatement, that we, we must keep in consideration as we think about perhaps how we treat others or decisions that we make. The first person is God. You were probably expecting me to say that. But it's striking, because in a society that's done away with God, largely, or at least the God of the Bible, we must never ourselves live to, to, sit, to, to live or decide or act without his framework, without an understanding of him being there in the situation. We've seen in Psalm 139 that he is, he is not unconcerned. He is the God of creation and covenant and continuity. Just because the rest of society has done away with him doesn't mean we can. Fundamentally, the Bible's outlining of killing or prohibiting killing, from Genesis 9, verse 6 and elsewhere, but Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made man. So we can't make decisions imagining God is not there. Then the second one, and here's where we'll finish, is the importance of other people. 
We said a couple of weeks ago that we were made to be burdens. It's a hugely countercultural statement. People don't want to be a burden or a liability to others. And frankly, if we're ruled by self and we're ruled by our desires, and to be honest, we don't want to look after others. It's costly and it's painful. I say this as a parent who've had a number of poorly kids this week. I'd rather they were well or just a bit quieter. But commonly people say this, they say, I want to have dignity so as to not be cared for by others, particularly in elderly years perhaps. People don't want to be a burden on others. But I want to say this, I want to say that to be loved and cared for by others and to be served by others bestows on both them as the ones caring for us and us as the one being cared for a profound dignity. Because ours is a God who loves and who cares. Ours is the eternal Trinitarian, self-loving deity, Father loves Son who loves Spirit. There's something about him and how he works reflected in us and how we're to work. And that impacts how we treat others and whether we think it's all right to be a burden or not. Dignity can come from caring for others or being cared for by others. Because we were made for community. It must be at the heart of our Christian community. Actually, a couple, I'll say, here in this room, but they're not in this room actually at the moment. Told me of a neighbour recently, um, aged about 70 from their, their road, and she was clearly distressed or agitated in some way, out on the streets, upset. They went out to chat to her, to see what was going on, why she was so upset and stressed. And she told them this, she said a close friend of hers had been sick for a number of years and this close friend had had just committed suicide. But the reason she was agitated, obviously she was sad, but, but she was genuinely angry because her friend had denied the opportunity for her to care for her. But by committing suicide, she had meant that this friend couldn't care for her. And that was why this friend was so upset. She didn't have the opportunity to love. We must think hard what it means to, to age and to decay well. And that it's okay to let people look after us. Maybe that's a particular issue in our increasingly fragmented and isolated society where the support networks aren't there anymore. You don't often have grandma come to live for you, whatever it might be. But these things are all joined up, but we need to work out what it means to be community, that it's good to be a burden. It's good to care for each other. Final example is this. And again, I've obtained permission for this, and I'm, I'm pleased in a way to share this with you, because it means that we as a church family are working these things through, and that is such an encouragement for me. As I stand up here week by week and prattle on, um, to hear people actually processing and thinking is, is a real encouragement, so thank you. Um, it's a discussion currently happening with the Langleys, John and Hannah Langley. And it's about how they can best look after Mim in junior church. If you've been around for a while at Morgan Road, you'll have had the privilege of journeying with John and Hannah as they've looked after Mim these last three years. Because they're beginning to take seriously or wanting to take more seriously, and we at junior church are as well, what it means to honour someone like Mim what it means to care for her as part of our body. Not just nominally caring for her, but actually caring for her and loving her.
And she's got complicated needs. We hope and pray she'll be off the feeding tube soon. But she has a profound dignity because she's made in God's image. Let's pray. Father, in a culture and a society increasingly that finds value or dignity away from you and in the, the usefulness of someone or the functionality of someone, we pray that we might be those who, who treat people with the value and dignity that they deserve because they're made in your image. Help us as individuals and help us as a church family to work through what that means Guard us, please, from making decisions or treating people as if you're not there or as if other people don't matter. But rather, would we be, please, a a community, a redeemed community of people who, who love you and know you and are increasingly being transformed into your likeness as we become like your son. Please, would a cynical world look in at the difference that you make and the way that we treat each other and would they see how incredible you are? Would they see that you are the God God of Psalm 139 who makes and who knows? In your son's name we pray. Amen.